Hello friends, welcome back to the Dan Mabry Project. Uh, this episode is with 5th District Congressional Candidate Matt Hasty. Uh, I have to say a big thanks to Matt and also Mr. Hamilton, uh, the Bespoke Barber. Check him out, uh, look him up on, uh, on Facebook I believe. You can definitely find him on Google Maps if you need a haircut. He's uh, a really, really kind individual. I uh, really can't thank Mr. Hamilton enough for letting us use his space and his time, really. Uh, I really tried to be as objective as possible on this podcast and uh, be straight down the middle and just ask Matt questions on on uh, topics that I thought were important to these days. Um, I know that I probably could elaborated more and probably could have asked some harder questions, some easier questions, whatever. Um, please feel free to leave your thoughts in the comments and ways that I can improve. Uh, this is the first time I've ever interview, interviewed a uh, quote-unquote political figure, even though Matt's not really the typical political figure. Um, but yeah, I uh, absolutely wish Matt the best of luck. And if any other political candidate would like to come on and uh, you know give their pitch, uh, give their... Uh, their points of view on, on certain issues, I'd love to have them on as well. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or via the comments. Uh, love to uh, link up with you uh, in whatever way we can do it. Um, thanks to you, the viewer. And uh, yeah, if you want to support me, there's ways to do that in the comments. Uh, if you want to support Matt, I'll also leave uh, the link to his website down in the comments as well, or down in the, in the description as well. So, uh, thanks for watching, and I uh, hope you enjoy. Are we recording now? We are recording. We are right. recording. Well, then I'm going to take this thing off. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Mr. Matt Hasty. That's me. Nice to meet you, sir. Pleasure's mine. Uh, I want to start this off with a phone call. With a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> hey, better than in the middle of it. That's right. Yeah, I was going to say that. It will not rain. Yeah, so uh, me and Matt have been kind of in conversation via Facebook for a couple months now, I guess. And uh, yeah, he's running for 5th fifth fifth District Congressional Candidate. Is that How would you say that? Absolutely. Uh, Louisiana's 5th Congressional District. Yeah. So, um, so just to kind of preference what's going on here, um, I have was born in Alexandria, Louisiana, raised in West Monroe, Louisiana, and uh, Ruston, Louisiana is home now. All three of those places are in the 5th District. Um, I pretty much lived in the 5th District for 20-plus years. My family owns a business in the district. I have many interests within this district. Um, I am registered as a libertarian. I try to stay as moderate as possible throughout everything. Um, I voted for Gary Johnson 
for the presidential election simply because I hated Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Gary Johnson climbed Mount Everest. That was my reasoning. That's how political <laughs> I get. So um, I really want... You got to vote your heart. <laughs> yeah. I want to make this interview as objective as possible. Okay. And um, I'm not really looking to necessarily debate you on anything. Okay. Um, I just want to get to know you, who you are, and what your stance on certain issues are. Absolutely. Um, Ask me anything. I have reached out to some other people via social media and, and gotten some other questions. So Uh-oh. I'll, uh, I will reference kind of, I won't reference the, I'll reference those people to some degree, maybe, you know, uh, what their association to the question would be, but I will not use any names. Okay. Um, so first of all, where are you from, Matt? Uh, I was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, lived there with my, my dad, my mother and, uh, three brothers and two sisters. Uh, then my parents got divorced when I was 10 years old, and my mom did what a lot of single mothers do. She moved back home with her mom. So we came to Alexandria and uh, slept on the floor of my grandmother's living room for a few years, and then we could afford a trailer out past England Air Park, and we stayed in an apartment in Chateau Royale in Martin Park, um, lived out in Ball, uh, had a house out in Echo, just moved around a lot. I mean, lived where you could. Yeah. So, Mama was working three jobs with three kids. Okay. So. Um, how old are you? I'm 40 years old. Four zero. 40 years old. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you, okay, so uh, I guess I should have said this earlier. Uh, if you look up Matt's website, uh, go ahead and plug your website. Right GoHasty.com. Go with an X. There you go. Go uh, Hasty. On the top of it. It says, committed, honorable, and open. Transparency is the name of the game. Um, this was another reason why I was more willing to do this interview with a quote-unquote politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, of my political stances in general and try to stay out of it. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, you know, if you, you were, and, and we had the conversation on the phone a couple weeks ago. You said that you were willing to have the hard conversations. Oh, yeah. So, um, well, that's, that's, that, and I don't mean to yeah, yeah, you're you, fine. That, that's, it, it's one of the reasons that our political processes have become so broken is that um, we classify each other. You say you're a libertarian and there's so many people out there who instantly assume, you know, you want to make tax, all taxes illegal. You know, you want to uh, make sure that serial killers can own tanks, you know, and there's so many people that don't understand the beliefs of their neighbors because we have to categorize people these days in order to have conversations with them. For sure. So when you say you didn't want to talk about politics, I'm, I'm, I'm not mad about that. I've been trying to talk politics to people all over the district. Yeah. And the problem is that nobody can do it anymore. We're, we're all so frustrated and angry that we just we can't push past it to listen. Um, so what you were talking about with transparency as a libertarian, I know it had to have appealed to you. Yeah. Because one of the core beliefs for me, not just for a libertarian, but also for any true conservative is that we do not trust the government. The idea that the, the government is doing what's in our best interest is, is as abhorrent to the average American that, you know, as almost anything else. And people outside of our borders don't understand that, okay? But our elected officials have created this system that the only people that can get elected are the people that are within the system. And then once you're inside the system, it becomes a cycle of elected official all the way over to lobbyist. And now you're working at, you know, Northrop Grumman on the board of directors. And, you know, so it becomes, for lack of a better term for it, becomes a good old boys club. Right. And 
we've reached this point now with this worldwide emergency that our lack of trust in our institutions is being put on display. The lack of the lack of trust we have for the media that are supposed to be giving us direct information, the lack of trust that we have for our elected representatives who are supposed to be putting our interests first. And, every, you know, like we were talking about categorizing people. You see somebody with a mask. Oh, well, that guy's, you know, he's an idiot. He just believes what he's told. You see somebody without a mask. You say, OK, well, that person just doesn't care about other people, you know. And when the truth is, we don't know what to believe. Now, how do you fix that? That's the that's the question I always have to ask myself when I see a problem. How do you fix that? So in the military, the one thing you can always control as a leader is your own behavior. You set an example as a leader. That's what you're expected to do. So in order to set an example as a congressman, one free app for any fifth district constituent who has a smartphone, you download it to your phone. You take a look at it. All you got to do is tap on it. You got two options. You can participate in any meeting that's on my schedule. And of course, you'd have to be screened. We ain't figured out all the processes yet just to make sure that we don't get yelled at in every meeting. Um, but then right after that is financial transparency. You click on it, it says bank account. Okay. You open it up. You can see every dollar amount that's been deposited to my account from paycheck to donations to everything. Keep looking. You can see exactly where it goes. You know, we bought this much in signs. We bought, we paid this much for transportation to go here. Now explain to me why this is something that hasn't been discussed already. With the technology that we have in place, there's absolutely no reason not to do this. And I, as I ask you that, you already know the answer. So, well, now I think, I think I'm going a different way than you're thinking. Oh, okay. So. Did I, did I give you too much for No, no, no. Whenever, you, whenever you're talking about that, yeah. my mind goes to the way I was raised and basically my father's mentality. <clears throat> You're talking about building an app. Who's mm-hmm. going to pay for it? Me. You're going to pay for it. Uh, members of Congress make $150,000 a year. They also get paid a million dollars a year for their staff. Okay? That's not counting any of the donations that we do. And when we talk about designing an app, there are organizations out there like the Lincoln Project. There are organizations out there like uh, PolitiFact that would jump on the opportunity to have more transparency in government. So who's going to pay for it? I'm going to start, but we're going to find partners who think just like me and you do that this government of ours has got it all twisted if they think they can stand on a podium and say, wear a mask, and I'm just going to give the North and South. You know what I'm saying? Okay. We, we have to re-earn trust. And until you re-earn trust, you have to behave as if you're mistrusted. And after I get into elected to Congress, guess what? I'm mistrusted by every voter out there because now I'm in Congress. And I have to earn that back. Okay? But I want to do that. That's how we fix our government is we get people in there with the mentality that you have to set an example if you want to change the future. Well, I definitely like that mentality. That was, uh, I really like that answer. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Is it enough to make you see past the beard? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a beard man myself. So okay. That, that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Um, all right. So you mentioned you're in the military. Um, why did you join the military? Um, it's an old, you know, if, if you asked 100 people in the military why they joined the military, you're going to get at least a thousand different answers, you know, because uh, why you join is not necessarily why you stay in. You know, because once you get in the military, it's hard to explain to anybody that's that hasn't been in it. But, the, you know, the military 
sucks. <laughs> you know, you're waking up at 5.30 in the morning and you're exercising even though you don't want to. You're shaving even though you don't want to. So um, you have to find reasons to stay in beyond why you joined. And I tell you all that to tell you this. The reason I joined is because I was poor. I was dirt poor and I didn't have a lot of options. Well, when you were kind of telling your upbringing, I, I had that question, but I kind of had, yeah, yeah. had no, assumed no, it No, no, we grew up. At the time, I was actually working at the Alexandria Convention and Visitors Bureau as a janitor. That's what I was doing right when I joined the military. And how old were you at that time? 19. So, and you committed your life to the military? Well, I first joined up, um, you know, my grandfather was in the Army, and he, he did exactly what I would do these days to somebody who said they wanted to join the Army. He said, no, 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 no. You need to go look at the Air Force. <laughs> the Air Force treats their people better. They get more money, all this stuff. Um, so I looked into the Air Force, but then when I you know, settled, on the army. Now I don't consider it that. But yeah. um, when I went to the army, uh, I decided that I wanted to get a job skill, you know, not necessarily just going in and jumping out of planes and right. doing all that stuff. So I, I pursued computers, okay. which at the time, if you went into some high skill job like that, you had to join for six years. You know, they weren't going to let you do two years and then get out and make a bunch of money. So I first joined up for six years and I got promoted very fast. So that by the time I hit my 10-year mark, I kind of had to make a decision, you know, stay or go. Gotcha. So I guess, um, how, so you just served for six years? Or the first served? enlistment. The yeah, first enlistment. Right. So how long has your service time up to this point, I guess? 20 years, all added up. I actually, I joined 19 January 2000, and I retired 23 January 2020. Wow. So nailed it. <laughs> um, what rank did you get to? Um, I was a CW2, a Chief Warrant Officer 2. Are you familiar with most people? Not at all. Say, and a lot of people even inside the military aren't familiar with warrant officers because we're very uh, we're very well kept. Secret. I guess I want I want to put this information out there because obviously you are heavily promoting that you're a veteran, and I want to I want other veterans to see that. You oh know, yeah, and, the, and anybody in the army is going to know that they they would be calling me Chief. Oh. See? You're good. You're good. I'm very clumsy. <laughs> um, they would be calling me chief. Uh, they know what it is. But so you have in the military, well, in the army, you've got enlisted ranks, the lower enlisted, which is E1 private through E4 specialist, right? These are the grunts that you always see cleaning up the motor pools. Right. And then you've got the sergeants, which are sergeant, staff sergeant, surface class, all that stuff. Okay, that's the enlisted ranks. And then you've got the officer ranks, which are lieutenant, captain, colonel, general, all that stuff. Every officer outranks every enlisted, right? Okay. So the highest ranking enlisted guy is below the lowest ranking officer. Warrant officers are, they're, they're two different kinds. You've got pilots and pilots can come straight off the street and go through their training and stuff, obviously. But for technicians, which is what I was, um, each specific job within the military screens sergeants from that job field and they make sure that they're the technical experts. You know, they have to be professional. They have to all that stuff. And if you get selected, then you go to a, another training course in Alabama and all this stuff. But then from then on, as a warrant officer, your job is basically to work directly for the commander of the unit and to solve his problems. Um, I was a communication specialist, so my job was to look at a field problem, a training exercise that's coming up in six months, and look at it and say, okay, we're going to need this, 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 this. Does that make sense? So... Was it like supply chain type stuff? Um, for, well, we do have supply warrants, but for me, it was all communications. Okay. It, it was, I, my job title was actually network management technician. So you're like 
preparing to set up communications? Or? Part of it was, pre- yeah, preparing, uh, executing, and recovering. Okay. Are the three major phases of it. But preparing, you know, you got to find the... You don't want to get into it. It's it's a lot of nerd stuff. I can lose you on real quick. I mean, is you got to get cut sheets for IP addresses, and you got to make sure all of the network devices are configured so that you can pull in secure. So it's not necessarily like is it like a physical thing, or is it like uh, like you're getting software and devices and stuff put together? Both. Okay. Both because um, every Army tactical unit has what we call a Win T package. You know, Army loves their acronyms. Um, I can't. I can't remember what it stands for. And there's a lot of guys that are going to laugh at me for not being able to remember <laughs> what it stands for. But um, every time, a, a, let's say, a, a military unit goes to the field and their job is to go out, find the enemy, and kill them, okay? They have to have a command post in order to do that so the commander can coordinate the, the actions. Well, these days, just like in, in the civilian world, everything is done over the network. Everything's done over the – we don't call it the Internet because it's not the Internet. It's our tactical network. Pretty sure that's actually in Win T somewhere. <laughs> but um, each one of those devices, each one of the routers, each one of the computers, each one of the servers, each one of those has their own software. They have to be configured. And it changes, you know, each time you do an, a training exercise. Okay. And, you know, the more complicated the communications, the more complicated the preparation, all that stuff. Fair enough. I know it, it sounds boring, doesn't it? No, no. I mean, <laughs> that's that was my next question was what your job was and what the responsibilities yeah. were. So. Um, it's a lot of creative problem solving, which is why I I have a problem with the idea that I have to be experienced in politics in order to, you know, fix what's wrong with politics. Great, because I have a problem that because you're in the military, yeah. you think that you can be in politics. Well, absolutely. Thank you for <laughs> looking me right in the face and saying that. What we just talked about with the creative problem solving. Yeah. Okay. Well, and um, that, that, but that that's because I just see. You were in the military, and so you think that you now you can more. be in the government. That's but that that is why I ask. You know what your job was. What you know. What yeah. what, what, what what makes you think that the right? Because X my next question is like, did you do you have any did you have any other jobs outside of the military? Oh well, not before I joined the military. I mean, I was you know right. No, no, painting I'm not, houses, I'm not working in cashier about that. in the military. So when I say I was communications. Um, that's what we call our MOS, our military occupational specialty. But depending on where you get stationed, you'll never do that job. Gotcha. So I've deployed three times. I've actually never deployed as my job. Every time I, the first time was as a civil affairs sergeant, which was interacting with the local populace and stuff like that. And then I was a platoon sergeant. Then I was an operations sergeant. So um, it's a lot about being able to analyze a situation and figure things out. What's uh, the X factor is what they used to call it in uh, Germany. Gotcha. So an X factor, I mean, that just means you can put that soldier some, they're going to figure it out and they're going to make it happen. And I'm, I'm, it's hard to do politics because it's, I don't like bragging about myself. You know what I'm saying? But I can do that. I'm very good at it. So you had multiple deployments. Oh yeah. Uh, One one to Afghanistan, one to Iraq. And I went to, uh, I was on a special forces base in Qatar. So I guess when did Germany mix in there oh yeah so the first just like we were talking about um you know traveling to see the world and stuff i joined the military you know because i was poor and didn't know really what else to do but i wanted to see the world so when i joined the military you used to be able to get a guaranteed station of choice so that when you enlisted you could request europe or something like Mm -hmm. that so my first tour of service was over in germany i was there from September, I was over there for 9-11, September 2000 until I think August 2002. I was in Eder Oberstein, Germany. And 
Yeah, I went from there to D.C. <coughs> Excuse me. D.C., back to Germany, to Afghanistan, to Georgia, Germany, Iraq, Georgia. <laughs> you want me to keep going? Yeah, 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 yeah okay. for sure. So Georgia and then Georgia, was, U.S., Georgia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've traveled to the Eastern European Georgia, but I, I was never stationed there. Um, and then after that time, I went to Qatar for six months, uh, came back to Georgia, went back to Germany again. And then I got stationed in Manhattan, New York City for a year, actually. Uh, man, I had to travel a lot between Manhattan, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And then I got picked up for the warrant officer thing we were talking about. So I had to go to Alabama for training. Georgia again. Georgia's the home for the Army's signal, just okay. so you know, the communications right. gotcha. corps. Um, but then after that training, I went to Korea for a year, came back and got stationed in Georgia, and then got out of the Army. And right in it, when I immediately got out of the Army, so remember we said why I was why I joined? I was poor. Okay. So, and, you know, my family is not poor now, but they still. Just like most people in this district, they're struggling to get by. Yeah. So the the first thing I did when I got out was I decided to try to find a job that was going to pay me well, and I had one. I got one at uh, JSOC up at Fort Bragg, making a lot of money, a lot of money, and I just I wasn't happy. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to use this for money. You know, I want I see something wrong with my country. I'm firmly convinced I can do something about it, and I want to be—I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror when I'm 60, you know, and say that I tried. So, I mean, I can only imagine that through your travels and through your military experience, you have encountered—you literally encountered and developed relationships with people from around the world. Oh yeah. Um, I guess. Can you talk about maybe how some of just the multitude of personalities that you've interacted with have kind of shaped you and like, you know, just maybe some of your experiences from overseas, whether it be in the Middle East or Europe or whatever, from your world travels. Um, absolutely. Kind of, it maybe pushed you to what, what you're doing now. There's, there's an old quote. Uh, I forget where it actually came from. I think it was Margaret Thatcher, but, but somebody said that Europe is built on history and America is built on philosophy. And it's something I read long, long time ago. And my experience is really, and it's because it's not just Europe, Asia's like that too, that those societies and those cultures have, they've progressed over the years through a kind of trial and error of governments. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And well, I mean, there's churches there that are older than America. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I think that it's hard to, you don't, you never want to speak in generalities. You know, you don't want to say Germans do this or Germans do that because Germans are just as diverse as Americans, you know? But I think for the most part, there's an accepted mentality in Germany of I'm willing to sacrifice a degree of my personal liberty for the good of the whole. And I think that's common across most European countries nowadays, because like I said, they've built it on their history. Um, we've forgotten the fact that America is an experiment. America is people didn't sit down and write up this constitution and walk away from it knowing that they had created the the best government. No. They they created a system that they knew was going to be a struggle for years and decades and centuries because it's an idea. It's the idea that people can live together in a society while also prioritizing individual liberty you know, to the point of personal responsibility, that the government is not responsible for your health, you know, and, and 
again, not to give you a $20 answer for a $5 question, but if you look at our history, you can see why it happened. If you go back to the New Deal, you know, we had the Great Depression. So, of course, what does the government do? It says, we don't want to let people starve to death. Let's make the government bigger. Uh, you know, after the New Deal, you got, or actually it was World War One, then the New Deal, then uh, World War Two, then the Cold War. I mean, as we progress, we see the government starts taking care of more and more and more and more things. And I think if we look, anybody who studies history and you look back at the original intent, it's not hard to see where we've gone wrong, you know. Um, so I think America in this world is a light. I mean, it's it's a it's a beacon for people that want to be able to reach whatever their goals are. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever your dreams. You want to take care of your grandchildren. You want to be the you know, the most powerful person at Harvard, whatever it is, if you're willing to come to this country and, and work harder than the person beside you, do you know what I'm saying? If you're willing to work, if he's working 20 hours, if you're willing to put in 21, this is the country where you can succeed. That's what it's supposed to be. Okay. Uh, um, and that's, that's the passion. That. No, that's great. <laughs> and I, I want to use that to roll into another question. Okay. Uh, we'll kind of get into some, some policy issues here a little bit now. Sure. Um, Coming off of what you just said, this was a question that was given to me by a local business owner. Um, there is a, an issue in this country of, of immigration to some degree. Um, I, through my own experience, also believe that there is an, an issue with certain people who have come to this country and spent 15, 20 years laying low, never going to jail, working their butts off building families here and they still don't have citizenship. Um, and, and I think that there's an issue there and I, I don't know how familiar you are with the subject, but I am. just wanted to get, get your opinion on it. Absolutely. And, and um, so maybe some steps we could go forward with it. Sure. The, the, uh, the military is not very conducive to, and trust me, I'm going to get to your point. I hate, I hate yeah. when you ask me a question and I yeah. start off on somewhere that seems way and, out there. And don't apologize for being long winded. This is, this is exactly what you want. Okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah. How about uh, <laughs> this is your opportunity. Cause I'm getting into politics, man. Yeah. I, I can talk. That's right. Um, at the time, uh, at my last marriage, the military is not conducive to marriage at all, but I was married to a Russian citizen. Okay. I met her when I was over in Germany and being an American soldier in Germany Stationed on base now, and, I, you know, you get married overseas. So, you know, based on the, the immigration law, she's, she's a citizen, you know, once you get married. Right, right. The amount of stuff that we had to go through just, to, just for her, she's a military spouse at this point, just for her to be able to come to the States with me is absolutely absurd. I mean, you're talking, I must have spent $1,000, you know, and, and it took six months, easy. Um, that's just one part of it, what you're talking about with the immigrate. We all know the immigration system's broken. It's just like so many other things. We know our healthcare industry's broken. We know all this stuff, okay? But there's nobody taking a look at it. The administrative overhead is absurd, to an absurd degree, that what we deal with with immigration. So that's one. Um, two, the people that have been here for 15 to 20 years who are out there every day and they're busting their hump and they're paying their taxes and they're productive members of society, you know, they're positive members of the community. Those are, you know, they're not Americans, but there's no reason they shouldn't be. You know, there's no reason that if you come to this country and you're willing to work hard, what we do need to look at, and not just with immigration, with, with any citizen or non-citizen who comes to this 
country or state or region or whatever it is, and it's just determined to live off of the benefits that they're provided. And I'm not speaking in abstractions. I have two very close members of my family who have addiction problems, and they are just they're living large right now with their unemployment benefits. And I'm not saying we don't need the unemployment benefits, but I'm saying as we let our government transition from helping people to getting elected, these are the solutions that are that they're going to come up with. Whenever we see something like uh, the unemployment rate is skyrocketing or the economy is crashing or something, instead of, instead of taking a look at the root cause, you know, how can we set this up so that it's not going to be a problem a year from now? They, they only see it till November. That's why we're getting these patchwork payments coming through the mail. We can't do that indefinitely. We know we can't. Yeah. And right now, people are depending on that money. So what happens when we rip the rug out from under them? Yeah. But there's no conversation about what happens after November because that's all anybody cares about. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Um, so with, Definitely. <laughs> with the people who have been here 15 to 20 years and they're, they're, they're working, they're productive and everything, I think there should be a clear pathway to citizenship for those people. And it needs to be simplified across the board. You know, I don't want a military soldier over in Germany doing more paperwork than, you know, uh, an immigrant who's sitting here doing something. But what we do need to talk about, I can go off on immigration for a while. We need some common sense conversations. Okay. Now, uh, President Trump got elected talking about a border wall. Now, do we need a border wall? Do you know? Do we now? Do we need a border wall? I'll tell you right now. I don't know. Okay, because the people who are making that decision, the people who should look you in the face and say we need a border wall, are the people who work at the border patrol. They need to look you in the face and say, hey, I need this and this to make my job easier. Okay, in order to do the job that you've given me, I need these tools. And if they say they need a wall, we need to build a wall. Period. If they say we need more drones, if they say we need this, they're charged with the protection of our southern border and they need to have all the resources that they request. That's that's one. Um, two, we've got to have a common sense conversation about the immigration that's coming from South America and about the strain it is putting on our immigration system. Because what's happening because of policies in the past is that it's become very enticing to cross at the border. Because what the situation that we have now is that if you cross the southern border and you get caught, Claim asylum. That's what you have to do. You claim asylum. As soon as you claim asylum, they cannot cut you loose. Okay? They can't cut you loose. You have to be held until you get seen by an asylum judge, right? Mm -hmm. Backed up years. The right. judges are backed up years. Yeah. So what the Obama administration was doing was releasing them into the country and saying, hey, um, you have a court date on this date. Make sure you come back. And then just releasing them into the country. Right. Well, does, common, does that pass the common sense test? I mean, to you? No. Me neither. So... What President Trump did that nobody's really talking about, because a lot of people have problems with Trump, he talked to Mexico. And he got Mexico to set aside land on their side of the border so that they could be held there until they get seen. Now, how does the media portray that? Kids in cages. Yeah. Kids in cages. Kids yeah. in cages. It's because the most... Nobody's being held against their will at the border. That, that's another thing that we all need to get into our mind, is that at any time, you can withdraw your asylum claim and go wherever you want. Okay, But nobody's talking about that. All we talk about is the the kids in cages. And instead of taking a look at the resources that are being restricted at the border, masks are the easy argument. You know, black lives matter is the easy argument. Kids in cages. That's the easy argument. Those are the things that we're given to argue about instead of taking a look at the deeper issue. I could just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. To some degree. Uh, I definitely have some very good points there. Um, uh, we're going to keep switching it up. Please. Uh, I'm just going to bounce around to where, 
we keep getting some uh, some different views here. So there's a, not necessarily an issue in this state, but maybe an issue in other states about gun waiting periods. Um, there is no gun waiting period in Louisiana. Um, if you go and purchase a gun, you pass a background check, you can take your gun home with you that day. Um, what's your opinion on that? And do you think it should change? Um, well, I mean, the, I guess the logic behind a waiting period is that if you want a gun and you're angry, that three days is going to help you calm down. Right, right. Well, I mean, and like I said, I'm, there's probably history behind this that I don't know. You know, maybe something horrible happened. And, and But common sense, you know, logic tells me that if you're mad enough to kill somebody, three days ain't going to change your mind. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, but it does restrict the, the constitutional rights of Americans, you know? So is the juice worth the squeeze there? Or are we going to restrict everybody's rights based on this one person who's going to be angry for, you know, two days and then forget about it? <laughs> so that's, that's one issue. But the other thing we need to have a conversation with about guns in this country is that there's no such thing as a gun without a background check. We all need to understand that. Nowhere in this country can you just walk in, get a gun, and walk out of the store. Okay? The one exception that everybody talks about is the gun show loophole. Okay? And like I said, a lot of people can't tell you what the gun show loophole is. Why, why we call it a gun show loophole is that if I go to a gun show to show off my personal collection of guns, okay, just to show Mr. Mabry exactly the guns that I have, and you come to the gun show and you say, man, that AR-15 is absolutely beautiful. No price on it. That AR-15 is absolutely beautiful. I'll give you $20,000 for it right now. I can sell you that gun right. without a background check. That's the gun show loophole. Now, when you boil down the law to what it would actually do if you start trying to apply background checks to that, if you're my neighbor, if you're my brother, if you're my father, if you're my uncle, I can't give you a gun. Right. I can't sell you a gun because now one of us has to pay for a background check. Right. Okay? So common sense, common sense says... Dangerous people shouldn't have weapons. When I say dangerous, you're talking, you know, convicted felons of, of multiple violent offenses. Um, but what we can't do is just start drawing arbitrary lines in the sand. Mental health is the latest one. Okay. And if you take a look at the details of what people want to propose, you have to start asking these questions. Who decides if I'm mentally fit? Okay. Cause that's the person you're trusting to remove my liberties, right. you know? So who is that? And what's the appeal process? What if you're the authority and you're just mad at me? You know, how do I go to somebody and say, Hey man, this guy took my liberties away for no reason. Yeah. And there's no process for that. Okay. People just say, you know, people with mental health conditions should not have access to weapons. And you know, on the theory, on the surface, we can all agree, but it's depression's a mental illness. You know, anxiety is a mental illness. If you look in the, what do they call it? The, uh, there's a man MSM, I think DSM, the DSM five of mental health diseases. Okay. There's a book called the psychopath test. If you gotcha. read it, the average person's got 12, 15 mental health issues. You know, the author I think found 15 on himself. Okay. So how do you decide who's dangerous and who's not? Cause you're, you're talking about removing a constitutional right. Right. So, um, just like with a lot of these conversations, I think they've been co-opted by you know, people who make money and people who use it for power. They keep it real simple for the voters. You know, when it's, if a problem has reached the national level of our government, by definition, it is a complicated problem because it hasn't been solved by the local government, state government, you know, or individuals within a community. Okay. It's got to keep getting elevated. So there's no simple problems up at the federal level, no matter what campaign commercials tell you. 
Hard to argue with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what is your stance on marijuana? Medical, recreational? Obviously, uh, medicals, uh, I believe, been passed in the state of Louisiana for a couple of years now, yeah. but there's been zero ability to access it up well, until recently. Yeah, there's a doctor in Baton Rouge. I don't know if I can give him a shameless plug, but Dr. Chow in Baton now I'm worried I might not get his name right. <laughs> well, he's in he's in Baton Rouge. He he sees people. He has office visit. You have to pay for the office visit and everything. He evaluates your medical records, and then you get what's called a, a tincture. Tincture mm-hmm. goes underneath yeah, your yeah. tongue. Um, I know about this because I was given medical marijuana by the government for my PTSD. Um, I struggled with my PTSD for about the last year. I was in the military, and I mean, you're talking. At one point, I was taking pills that were just you know, a handful of pills because they give you something to treat your depression, your anxiety, your sleeplessness, your shakes. I had the shakes like nothing. And then they've got to give you pills to counteract the, the second, you know, the uh, side effects of the the, the the first pills. So, um, eventually through a lot of trial and error, my doctor wrote to the Pentagon and got special permission to prescribe me Marinol, which is it's medical marijuana. And now I take two pills. I take Effexure and I take Marinol. Um, I think, I think medical marijuana is another one of those things that is, you know, who wins with illegal marijuana? There's five groups of people who win with illegal marijuana. Okay. Uh, the private prison industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the alcohol industry, drug dealers, and politicians who make money on the other four. That's it. Doctors want to use it for medicine. Veterans want to use it for the anxiety, for their PTSD, for sleep. Adult Americans want to use it for recreation. There's absolutely no reason for it not to be legalized other than those five people. So that's where I stand on it. Would you make a push to make it recreationally legal? Absolutely. Legalize it and tax it. Because we're about to need a lot of tax money. I was about to say, that that just using other states' models, particularly Colorado, uh, they just had tremendous, tremendous amounts of tax dollars that, at one point, I believe they had to give money back to their citizens, uh, which is pretty unheard of. And with the, the economy headed in the direction that it's headed now, we are about to need a lot of tax revenue. And if we don't do something like that, we're, we're talking higher taxes elsewhere because the government's not going to reduce its size on its own. It's going to keep promising more because that's how they get elected. <laughs> so say recreational marijuana gets passed, it starts getting taxed. Where are you pushing those tax dollars? To schools, education. Schools, schools in the United States of America should be cathedrals. I mean, we talked about the European churches. I mean, if, you, if you've been over there and seen some of when you walk into some of these churches that were built in you know, 1200 AD, people spent their entire lives mastering a craft just for the purpose of being able to make the perfect statue to put into a church. There's just care and love in every nook and cranny. and Because you can tell the people who built that understood the importance of what they're doing. Their faith is what drives them to do that. Our education system, when you look at the amount of money and power and authority that we have in the world for our education system to not be leading the way in every conceivable category is just, it's an indictment of our priorities. I mean, it's, you take a look at the spending, you take a look at the results. Tell me why our teachers aren't the highest paid people in our country. Tell me that. And, and, you know, correspondingly, they get the training and education needed to earn those paychecks. 
Okay. We talk now about uh, kids learning online and kids not being able to go to schools. I mean, you've got some experts out there who we can talk about internet access at a separate, you know, if you want to talk about that, but anybody who's got internet, explain to me why the government can't hold training, job training, you know, education. Hey, do you want to start a small business? Okay. Here's a free online training course with the L the Dean of the LSU school of business paid for by your tax dollars. I mean, explain to me why we're not reinvesting money back toward the people so that we can look long-term and see return on investments because you know why we're not. It's the same thing I keep hitting homes because nobody sees past November. And in December, the only thing they're going to see is the next two years. Well, and I mean, I kind of liked your five people analogy you had going there because that uh, that goes for a lot more than just marijuana. Oh yeah, it goes for a lot of things as well. Oh yeah. Um, I can talk. Yeah, I can go on and on about education. We need to, we need to, it's like the vast majority, all of the things that we have in our country that our government is handing. We need to rethink all of it. We need to rethink how we're thinking about it. We need to rethink the results that we're expecting from these programs. You, you know. The world changes every 10, 20, 30 years, and we've just been progressively allowing the government to kind of do its own thing, you know? And now we're at this point where does anybody out there believe the government is doing what's best for them, you know? Um, so we, we kind of referenced the option of, of marijuana there and the tax dollars going to education. Is Do you see another avenue to raise money to get more money to education? Obviously, seems as if uh the past i don't know what five ten years louisiana budget hasn't been uh the greatest most beautiful thing in the world yeah um do you see any other options there um at the national level absolutely at the at the state level i think there's a real conversation to be had about you know how do you invest where's the future if you if you set if you stop and start talking to anybody about the economy and where industries are going to go in the future okay um it's cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is not going anywhere Okay, we know that um, network administration, th- those kind of technical positions, um, social media, uh, graphic design. Um, and, I, you know, you can go on and on renewables. You know, not to, I don't want to pull you off into a, a, a global warming debate. But if you believe in global warming or you don't, do you believe that oil is going to run out someday? Don't we all know that it's going to run out someday? So why are we not now spending time and money to invest in renewables so we don't? We, the debate about global warming is one thing, you know, so it's either going to, what is it going to be a problem either five years or 50 years or 500 years, well, but I, we know I, it's going to be a problem. So let's. So I try to look at it in, in this manner and it, it kind of tackles two different subjects in, in uh, the environment, quote unquote, and the, and the, the job issue that we also have in, in Northeast Louisiana <clears throat> um, is, is diversifying the economy. Yep. I feel like our economy is. It is diverse. Obviously, there are a million different types of services and, and businesses that are offered in the state. But, you know, the majority of the money is really going to oil and gas and, you know, shipping in the ports in, in South Louisiana. And, you know, it almost seems like uh, culturally, uh, economically, uh, North Louisiana is, is a whole other world compared to South Louisiana. And, um, and a lot of states are like that, that you've got, you've got one region that's rich yeah. you know, for resources. And then you've got most of the, I mean, there's whole countries that are like that. Um, but 
as I said, whenever we were talking about with reorienting the way we're thinking about things, what I was talking about with cybersecurity and network, I mean, these are schools that can be set up in, in any abandoned building with an internet connection, yeah. you know, and you put a video teleconference on the screen with an expert in the field, spend 40 hours a week going to school and learning a trade, you know, whether it, it doesn't have to be cybersecurity, it can be, be a car mechanic, you know, be an arc welder, be a pipe fitter, whatever it is. There's no reason for us not to provide these opportunities, especially in a region like ours where, what's the median income, $32,000, $34,000? You know, it's absolutely ridiculous because we think that the easiest way to take care of those people is to provide them with handouts, to give them more money, okay, to give them more reason to, you know, hey, you can live off this. There's no reason to do this and that. They, what people need is opportunity. People need opportunity and they need a chance to prove that they're willing to chase their dreams. They're willing to work hard. They don't just want a handout. They just want an avenue. Give me an opportunity to show you what I'm made of. And that's what we need to be doing. Open up those opportunities through education, through free, uh, um, not community college, but skills training. You know, if you have to do it online, um, excuse me. <coughs> um, but even as we talk about the poverty in the region, because businesses are not the enemy. Businesses are not, as we talk about, you know, even when we say corporations and stuff like this, we just have to understand the mentality behind a business. The, the mentality of a business is to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's America. It's one of the reasons we don't trust our media is because our media is a business. We know that. And if I want to pull, uh, let's just say Tesla, because that's the first business that comes to my mind. If I want to pull Tesla to Louisiana to set up a, a factory to build, you know, their, their latest fire breathing car or whatever it is. But I go to Tesla and I say, if you set up in Northeast Louisiana, your tax rate would normally be, let's say 20%. Okay. Uh, if you combine your local state and federal taxes, this is how much money you'll be paying. Now, if you employ this many people, pay them this much money, provide these specific health care benefits, provide this specific child care benefits, we will reduce your taxes to zero. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes profitable for this business to treat its people better. And all of a sudden, you've got people have money to spend because they're getting paid more money. And, you know, your economy starts to revitalize. Okay, and who loses in that equation? The government. It's the only people who lose. They lose tax revenue. That's it. And that's, that's why I say we have to reorient our priorities away from what we've allowed them to dictate to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so there may be some people out there listening and watching that are saying, you guys are talking about all the city folk all the time. Uh, <laughs> obviously, there is a, a ton of, ton of, ton of farmland mm -hmm. in your district. Um, what do you say to those people? How do you plan on helping them? Uh, so there's a podcast out there that's the Delta Crop Podcast because I'm very aware of my own ignorance. I know it might sound like I, I think I know everything, no, but no, I, trust no. me, when I run up against something I don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to see me very quickly go, I don't know what we're talking about. And one of the industries that I need more education on is Louisiana's agriculture industry. I know it's, you know, I know we're talking, it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of the national economy, but specifically what I need education on are the issues that are being faced. So I contacted uh, the, the Louisiana Delta Crop podcast and actually asked them for some free education. And one of them wrote me, it was the lady whose name I can't remember. Um, but she wrote me back earlier this week and said that she was going to try to arrange something. So nice. 
Well, any, and that's any industry, you know, yeah. if a small, if an owner of a small business wants to say, Hey man, I want you to sit down and listen to the issues that my industry, you know, that that's what your representative should be doing. That's sure. their job. <laughs> For sure. So, um, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, okay. you did. I mean, you, you, you essentially said you, you recognize you need more education on Absolutely. that and you're obviously making plans to do so. So, yeah. um, speaking on relationships, um, there's a new mayor in Monroe, pretty successful mayor over in Ruston. Uh, obviously, there's larger other towns, maybe not necessarily larger, I guess, Alexandria, uh, Natchitoches, all in your area. Um, do you have any relationship with those mayors? Have you had any conversation with any of those um, Mr. Ellis uh, is a friend of a friend, actually. When I decided to uh, run for office, I, I, I had him on text, and we, we made several appointments to meet up with each other so I could get his advice, but he was in the dead middle of you know the election, so we never did hook up. And then since then, I've actually, I saw on uh, Mr. Letlow's page that I think, I think Friday Ellis is the voice you know, endorsed one of the competition, which is fine. I, I, I bear no ill. You got to support who you're going to support. For sure. You know, no big deal. Um, but the one mayor, I, I wrote the mayor of Alexandria. I tried to make an appointment um, because I was, I was hoping to hold a town hall about racism. Uh, and I went to the, and this was at the time that we were talking about the, the statues in front of the, the city. When we have these conversations about race, whenever something comes up with a statue, for me, it's a perfect opportunity to have a conversation. Let's all get together somewhere and let's have a conversation about what you think, what I think, and let's listen to each other. Yeah. Of course, I never heard back from him. Went to see the mayor of Grambling for the exact same reason. but And, and he was very nice. He gave me a card. Um, he, I mean, we sat in his office and talked for about 20, 30 minutes. And he said he would be willing to host it, you know, a town hall. But Mr. Martin Lamel is he works at Grambling. I forget exactly what his position was, and he's also running for the seat. So gotcha. it's kind of an awkward position for the mayor to be in. Yes. Um, I, I've spoken with, tomorrow we're having a town hall in Winfield, and I spoke to the Winfield chief of police. I spoke to the Wind Parish sheriff. Um, as I work my way around the district trying to get, you know, that's when I start to interact with those local uh, authorities. And yeah. we're trying to hold a town hall in every parish. So, uh, Well, that, that a question got brought up. While I was sitting here earlier, uh, I noticed that you are kind of, at least currently, you know, kind of attacking those smaller towns. Absolutely. Is that is that a plan? Is do you kind of do you do you think that the small towns will will carry you through? Or well, I can't tell you, it's opposite. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so that's a military term. It means operational security. Okay. It means like I can't tell you my plan. Yeah, I'm, that's just, fair. I'm just kidding, that's man. Fair. No. So um, I think my mentality is that. Uh, if I stay, if I start putting up signs in Monroe and Alexandria and in Bogalusa, they're kind of going to get lost in the sauce. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot going on inside the city and it, it, in the travels that I've had, it's not difficult to see the different mentality of people that work in a, live in a city than people who live in the rural areas. And the people who live in the rural areas are much more fed up with the government, much more fed up with the government. If you live in a city, like I said, I lived in New York city for a year those people that live in that city, they've kind of accepted a society of, you know, I'm willing to pay higher taxes so that I can have this nice subway. Yeah. You know, I'm from the country and that's, that's, I'm not willing to pay higher taxes. <laughs> right. I got a car. I'll drive my car. Yeah. Um, but I think the plan is to start to get the word out because my problem is nobody knows who I am. I've been gone for 20 years. Yeah. Right. So what I want to do is try to get my name out there first in those rural areas and let people hear me talk like you're hearing me talk. And you can hopefully you can see 
I mean what I say and I say what I mean, For sure. you know, and once people can see that, I think we'll start to see people inspired and we'll start to see people jump on the train. And once we get a following going, then we can go into the cities and, you know, not necessarily be drowned out. Fair Does enough. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Um, let's see here. You mentioned racism. Uh, we'll, we'll just go that route. What, what, what was your plan for those things? You know, what, what's your, uh, okay. So, um, maybe <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to answer you in probably the worst way possible. No, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't know, really know how to ask so, the question. So no, you're fine. Um, I'm going to give you a math problem. You ready? <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard of the bat and ball problem? Uh, I'm not familiar. Okay. So a bat and a ball together cost $1 and 10 cents. Okay. Okay. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much is the ball? 10 cents. Okay. So if the ball is 10 cents and the bat costs $1 more than the ball, then the bat is $1, 10 cents. Okay. $1, 10 cents plus 10 cents is $1, 20 cents. Okay. You thought it was a dime too, didn't you? Everybody who's listening to that, who heard the bat and Paul part, your first reaction for your brain is to say 10 cents. Okay. And even if you say that to somebody and say, this is a trick, and then you give them the problem. A lot of the times people still can't see any other option, but 10 cents, it's five cents. If the ball is five cents and the bat is $1 more than the ball, then the bat becomes $1, five cents plus five cents ball is $1, 10. Now go ahead and pause it. If you have to pause it and work it out on a piece of paper, because a lot of people get mad at this problem. Okay. But work it out on a piece of paper. Trust me because, and the reason I answer your question like that is by any definition, our brains are being assaulted by millions of pieces of information every second, millions. Okay. And our subconscious can process something like, 500 okay that's just the subconscious part of our brain that controls our breathing and stuff consciously you can handle about 10 okay that's how much you can consciously process your brain so in order to function in the world where all this information is coming to you at any time your brain creates shortcuts okay you saw that nice easy problem of one dollar ten cents one dollar more and all that stuff and your brain jumped it took a shortcut okay because your brain is accustomed to having to deal with things as they're presented to you Okay. Do you see where I'm kind of getting to this? Right, right. Okay. And we all need to understand everybody, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter. Everybody in this entire world needs to come to grips with the fact that as a human being, you have bias. We all have bias. All of us, every single one of us. Okay. And it's, it doesn't make you evil. It doesn't make you wrong. It just makes you a human being because we all prefer people that look like us. It's called a mirror bias. And if you need proof of this, all you got to do is walk into any high school lunchroom, any high school lunchroom, you're going to see black kids on one side and white kids on the other. Okay. And this is America. They can, you know, you can sit with whoever you want, but instinctively we prefer people that look like us. Okay. So that's one. Now let me give you number two. As a white man, you walk into a room that has a hundred, or excuse me, has 99 black people in it. Do you notice? Do you notice your skin color? And are you comfortable? Okay. And these are two questions everybody out there has got to ask themselves. Okay. Because your first reaction is to do that thing that says, well, I'm not a racist. Of course I'd be comfortable. Okay. But you got to be honest with yourself, right? I mean, my mind goes where I think you're going and that the role is reversed on exactly. a daily basis. That is how black Americans live in this yeah. country every day. They're 13% of the population. Now, and on top of that, the historical context of black Americans. Okay. That level of empathy with black Americans is what we all need to get through to our mind. Now, 
I'm going to go to the other side of it with you, okay? Which is to say what black Americans need to understand. What black Americans need to understand is that I'm white and I grew up poor, okay? My entire family is white and grew up poor. If you're in Louisiana's 5th District, <laughs> the odds are, doesn't matter if you're white or black, you're poor. You're poor. Okay? And it, it, it's not something that's conducive to a conversation for a black person to look at a white person they don't know and say you're privileged. It's not conducive to a conversation. I understand what they mean. They understand that mirror bias that we were just talking about and the fact that the vast majority of avenues to power are controlled by people that look like me. Yeah. Okay? I understand what they're saying. But what I'm saying is for somebody that wakes up in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, works all day, and then comes home at the end of the day to deal with their family and their house and everything like that, for somebody to walk up to them on the news and say, you have white privilege, it's, it's not something that they're going to listen to. Okay? Because... There's no, I don't know anybody that's from this district that has privilege. We, we've all struggled to, to reach where we got to go. Um, but that's the problem we have right now with race in our country is that no one is listening. No one is talking. It's all about here is my opinion and you're going to take it. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're wrong. I'm right. I, I was when I'm I was stationed. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the whole mentality. You're wrong. I'm right. Then there's no in between. Yeah. There's just, no conversation to be had. Yeah. It's just you're on my team or you're not on my team. That's it. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the culture that either gave rise to our politics or our politics gave rise to, the, to that kind of culture. But the result is the same. It doesn't matter where it started, the chicken or the egg. You know what I'm saying? We're still in this situation now where we're not listening to each other and feeding all the people who are profiting from it. So I, I think... When I was in Georgia, uh, when I, I was an instructor for two years at the Army Signal School, and I, when I joined the military, I was 19 years old. I, I might have interacted with 10 black people in my life, seriously. And, and most of the people I interacted with were black. They either stole from me or they were not nice to me. That was my experience with black Americans. And then I joined the military. And very quickly, you learn in the military that your skin color does not matter. <laughs> it does that. not matter. Very quick. I mean, it's, well, I'd, say, I'd say that's almost the first lesson in basic training. And it's reinforced everywhere in the military very yeah. quickly. You still got, like, like we were talking about, you don't want to speak in generalities. Because, of course, you got racists in any million group of people. Um, but for the vast, what color is the soldier underneath that flag? Asked, no veteran ever. We don't care. Um, but... I was uh, sitting in this training at Fort Gordon when I was an instructor, and it was right after Barack Obama had gotten elected. And if you remember, I, I'm not sure, but when George W. Bush was president, especially in the later years of his presidency, he was not popular, not popular at all. They were tearing him up all over, you know, late night, and, and everybody thought George W. Bush was, I met George W. Bush, he's not stupid, just so you know, but everybody thought he was. <laughs> but we were getting some equal opportunity training at the time, military, you gotta do it every quarter. And the equal opportunity trainer stood up and said, well, because now the president's a black man, any uh, disparaging remarks about the president will now be treated as equal opportunity remarks. And I, my, my, immediately I was like, wait, 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 wait. You know, now because the president's a black man, we got to start treating it different. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I looked around the room and it was the first time I had noticed in this unit that there were about 40 people in this room and there were three white people. I had never noticed it before. And then that was the, the context that led me to start thinking the way we just spoke about 99 people in a room and everything. And I, and I pursued it. I, I studied, I read Michelle Alexander. I read W.B. Du Bois. I've read uh, The New Jim Crow, um, which was the Michelle Alexander. And I've got a stack of books uh, that I'm trying to work my way through because 
we have to start communicating about our racial issues, okay? Whether you think our racial issues are everywhere or you think they're nowhere, the bottom line is that they're here, you know? Either the reaction to the issues or the issues themselves, and we're not going to solve them by yelling at each other. We have to be able to talk to each other. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely. That was that was great. Uh, would, I'm, I like to just keep jumping around. Go so, ahead, man. Um, <clears throat> why? Why? Why leave Georgia? Why come back to Louisiana? Why run for Congress? Why? Why? Because I can. Because I can fix it. I really think I can fix it. What? I guess what motivated you to do it? Maybe the better question. As what motivated I, you to leave Georgia and come to Louisiana, come back to Louisiana? You mean at that moment or do you mean in general? In general. Okay. So I consider myself, I consider myself a student of history. I love history. I love understanding how we get to the places where we are now. And, you know, history is just full of lessons if we can actually just pay attention to it. And historically, if you look the direction that our government is heading and the direction that our country is heading, it, it's, it's untenable. It, it's something that we cannot keep going this direction. We, we all know it. And that, that's the other thing that drives me crazy is that there's 327 million people in this country. And I, and I guarantee you, there's probably not, you know, a thousand of them who think everything's going great, <laughs> you know? So we all know we're going in the wrong direction, but we just don't know what to do about it. We're given these two choices every time. And it's like, you know, do you want me to punch you in the face or do you want me to kick you in the face? You know, and there's so many people just throwing up their hands and not seeing any other options. But as I talk to you, and as I said a minute ago, as you listen to me, I hope you can see, I mean what I say and I say what I mean. And I I have, I have honor and I have integrity and I have the values that have been given to me by the military. And I'm not afraid. (laughs) I once got my tail end chewed or we PG or G. Oh, you can say whatever the hell you want to. (laughs) I once got my ass chewed by a command sergeant major at Fort Campbell. Um, Right after his deployment, he had this huge scar on the side of his face. And I mean, this was in 2003 and it was the worst ass chewing. I wanted to cry. It was the worst ass chewing I've ever seen in my life. And I've never been afraid of anybody since. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even when you go down range, you're not necessarily scared of an individual as much as you're scared of you know, bombs and attacks. But as far as face to face, that's how I know I can walk into Congress and look somebody in the face and say, you know, I don't care how you've been doing things. I don't care. You know, if, if what we have now is a result of how you're doing things, (laughs) you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. Okay. And I just, when we say why I could, you know, talk about it for hours, but the simple answer to that question is because I can, because I can do it. I know that if I get into, if I get into Washington, D.C., if I get into U.S. Congress, we can fix our government. We will inspire the country. Was, did you have a specific event that fully inspired you to make that last push, or you think it was just like kind of a culmination? Of um, it, well, the mentality of trying to fix my government has been there for a long, long time. It's been there for years, uh, but... Why now in particular was a friend of mine that I was stationed with in in Germany 20 years ago. He's now a campaign manager up in, I think it's Illinois. And I was just kind of talking about it because I had planned on running in two years, you know, after uh, after this. Because I I just got out of the Army in January. I just got a lot of family stuff going on. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, But as the more I talked to him about it, he said, you know, Doc Abraham's retiring you know, there's all this frustration right now with the government at the time the riots were going on. And even now with the pandemic, 
people are sick of it. You know, people are sick of it and we're ready to have another option. And I just think now is the perfect time. If I can get the word out there. Yeah. You know, if, if Dan Mabry's viewership can just <laughs> skyrocket up to about 770,000 people, all of it in the fifth district. That would be incredible. <laughs> I would probably never leave Louisiana. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, do you have any ideas for social equality programs? Oh, yeah. So, uh, that it, was another question. Are we like was, live streaming? or No, no, no. It's all nerd, bro. I, I can't say I am. But I think you, you were asking about social problems and you said to promote equality. Yeah, that? and uh, I guess uh, uh, the question was posed to me was like uh, social equality programs was, was the question. I, I don't really know how to word it necessarily. Well, well and that's, so are it we is talking kind about of affirmative a, action? I'd say it is kind of a vague, vague thing now that I, I speak. Well, it. that's all right. So affirmative action. Um, if, if, I mean, if we assume that's what it's like, I said, we can talk about anything. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't care. Um, I think we all need to, when we talk about race in this country, one of the things that we all need to remember is one, we didn't all start from the same place. Okay. Especially for, uh, some minority, groups there's a generational um limitation of wealth and limitation of opportunities and what i'm talking about is i mean the new deal was rewritten to make sure that certain black farmers were not included in it and i mean that's just kind of how the policies were were right up until the civil rights act and beyond um now that's one aspect of it the other aspect of it is we all have to remember that the college kids who are coming out of high school today they work just as hard as the white students, okay? If you combine effort, okay? And we can take a look at that black student and say, you know, uh, historically, people that looked like him struggled more. Today, that might not be true, okay? Today, if to make an assumption based on, to make an assumption about someone's life based on their skin color is the exact opposite direction that we need to be heading, okay? So I've got my problems with it. I really think that if we need to... Uh, we do need to appreciate the historical context of our race problem because it's not widespread enough and we need to be educated and we need to be talking about it. Um, when we start talking about social equality, if we're talking about like uh, poverty because a disproportional amount of minorities live in poverty, um, I think that if you address poverty just because they're disproportionately affected, they're also going to disproportionately benefit. If you start addressing poverty at that level by economic bracket instead of by racial bracket, you're going to see that the rising tide raises all boats. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the times people want to pair incorrectly um, race with poverty, okay? And it's, like I said, you, you don't want to speak in generalities, but there's a disproportionate number of minorities affected by poverty. But if you address poverty beyond racial lines, you know, that means that disproportionately minorities would benefit. We've just got it. There's certain conversations that we need to have about race and there's certain conversations that we need to pull race out of the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And it's easy for a white man to say that. I know that because, you know, if you're a black man in America, in some case, maybe everything's about race. You know, maybe that's the way you live. I don't know, but I do know that we can't, we can't eliminate prejudice by switching prejudices and we can't eliminate bias by switching biases. You know, we're just trying to balance out two bad things to equal a good thing, which if you're raised like I was two wrongs don't equal a right, Mr. Mabry. Well, and this is to go off of what you were saying and to go off of 
my previous podcast, the one that came out just before this with TJ Pittman, um, I don't know what questions to ask because I am not a black man. Exactly. And I don't have enough black friends. And that is something that, that me and TJ kind of pulled out of me is yep. that, you know, like I, I don't have enough friends of, of color. And this is, it's a problem. It's not just you. I mean, yeah. and it's because your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, all of us in this region, you know, you're in a, sub, a suburb that's mostly people that look like you, you know, you you grow up in a neighborhood that's mostly people that look like you. you go to a school, you know? So as you grow up, you just don't make those connections. That's why I was so lucky to be in the military and to, I mean, I've got great friends that are black. I got great friends that are gay. I got friends that are transsexual. I got friends that are Russian, that are Cuban, that are, I mean, just in traveling the world, being able to meet people, you don't have to agree with people to be their friend. You don't. It's okay. We can completely disagree about everything and then just have a beer. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We've forgotten that in our country. Um, but I think the questions, we have to involve black Americans in these conversations more. It's very difficult to have conversations about race as two white men sitting here, which is one of the reasons I reached out to the mayor of Alexandria. It's one of the reasons I reached out to the mayor of Grambling. I didn't tell you this, but I also reached out to Candy Kristoff. I reached out to Martin Lamell. I offered to co-host a town hall with them on race, you know, so we can get out there and start trying to talk about it. Because um, I didn't want to, I don't want to hold town hall on race as a white man, you yeah. know. It's like I don't want to be there lecturing people about our our race issues. Um, but well, and that that because the, whenever you were telling me that you wanted to hold a town hall on racism, I was like, I don't. If it's just you. Yeah. Like how, I, how many well, people are really going to show partner up? With somebody, yeah, yeah. You know I mean, what that, I'm saying? That makes it's a lot more sense. Like, you know, hey, come listen to the white guy tell you about racism yeah. in America. <laughs> yeah. And that, I don't want it, but I do want to participate in the conversation. I, I've done, yeah. I've done research. I've done, it's become a passion of mine to understand this problem. And I still don't think I, I'm not saying I understand it, but I'm saying I'm, I'm thirsty for knowledge, you know? Yeah. And definitely. I don't think it's something you can read in a book. I think it can only get better through conversations. Uh, I guess maybe just throw it out there like what what do you say to the uh the people of the black lives matter who are you know pro not necessarily violently protesting but you know there was there was a black lives matter rally in both monroe and ruston um i guess what 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 would be a message to those people um, know, we were talking, yeah, we were talking about a little earlier about the easy arguments that we're given, yeah. right? So the pandemic's going on right now, and the easy argument we've been given to go at each other is masks. Are you wearing a mask? You're not wearing a mask. Um, and in every complicated issue, like we we're talking about immigration, kids in cages, and every complicated issue, it always gets simplified. And it gets simplified. I don't, I don't know if it comes from the politicians or from the media, and they just feed off each other or what. But all of these complicated situations get boiled down into these simple sides. You know, either your Black Lives Matter or your Blue Lives Matter. Okay, either you support the protesters or you hate the protesters. And the, the, the world is just more complicated than that, okay? I believe Black Lives Matter. I believe Blue Lives Matter. I believe that black Americans right now um, are feeling the effects of that unconscious bias that we talked about. I do believe that police are unfairly being targeted because of some of the interactions that they're having with civilians. Okay. I, I have a lot, of, I'm a veteran. I got a lot of friends that are police officers and some of them I don't think should be police officers. I really don't. I don't think they have the right mentality for it, but the vast majority of police that I know 
they're, they're the same as so they want to serve their communities. You know, they want to get out there and they want to help people. Um, to protest is every American's right, every American's right to peacefully protest. And we should all defend and encourage that. Okay. Violence in any form is going to be met with, you know, police response. That's just part of living in a society. You start burning things up. People aren't, we're not just going to walk away unless you burn things up. Um, but instead of having a look at, there's this concept that, that I learned over the years, it's called uh, double loop learning. You ever heard about it? Not familiar. So, it's, a, it's an idea about institutional learning that says when something goes wrong, you don't focus on the immediate effects. You have to try to figure out what caused it. And as an example, let's say you start a new business and, uh, you know, it's a, a, a storage warehouse or whatever. On Monday, all of a sudden, a fire breaks out in your closet, you know, down the road. So you go in there and you, you put out the fire and you put up a smoke detector, you close the door. Two days later, another fire starts in a different room. So you put in the smoke detector, you put in the, you know, all that stuff, close the door. A week later, you're having fires show up at different closets every day. Okay. Single loop learning is just putting fire extinguishers in there, putting the smoke detector in there. You want to make sure you're ready when the fire starts. Okay. Double loop learning is saying, why are these fires starting? Okay. What's going on in this building's electrical system or whatever it is that's causing fires to go on so we can fix that. The protests are an effect. Okay, they're not a cause. The protests are the language of people who do not feel that they're being heard otherwise. Okay, and the violence is the same. Martin Luther King said uh, of riot is the language of the unheard. Okay, but under no circumstances can violence be tolerated. Okay, that's just part of living in society. You can't you can't run around and burn things up because you're mad, you know, Um, but we we have to look past these simple arguments these oh you support black lives matter no i don't even want to talk to you You support blue lives matter no i don't even want to we have to get past these and see the deeper issues that are causing the results that we're seeing does that make sense yeah definitely no i couldn't agree more um i guess do you do you have a way to a plan to, to look past like how we can Get um, past that. So to, I, to have I some do believe, ground? as I said, I've got a lot of friends who are police and, you know, we talked about it, but I do believe we need to examine nationwide how we are overseeing our police and how we are correcting their behavior and things because the 99% are out there acting honorably. But for that 1% out there, everybody needs to understand that police in America are uniquely empowered to remove the liberty from American citizens based only on their judgment. Okay, and if we understand that about police, we need to understand that the standard of behavior for those police officers needs to be much higher. I'm talking about professionalism to the point of, you know, not even being able to say a cuss word. That's an extreme example, but that's what I'm saying. Just being professional as you can to get spit in the face and smile. Exactly. Well, and it it sounds terrible because a police officer is a person, too. You don't ever want to put anybody in that position. But if you're a police officer, you you've. You volunteered to do a job where you're going to, every day you interact with somebody, they're having a bad day. A police officer never talks to anybody when they're just like, oh, I'm having a great day. How are you, officer? No. People call the police when things are wrong, right? So they show up on the scene and immediately everybody's pissed off, okay? Because something's going on that's, <laughs> that's making everybody stressed out. Right. And police have to be in there to deal with that. And they're just people like me and you. Did you know every police officer in the country works 12-hour shifts? Did not. Every police officer in the country. 12-hour shifts. And if you talk to them about it, they don't really see a big deal about it. And I don't want to speak for them, but as somebody who's worked 
six, eight, 12, 24 hours, 36, 48 at a time. I will tell you that after a while, a 12 hour shift will start to wear on you. Yeah. Okay. And in a situation where you're walking into a situation, into a location, you start to get a little salty yourself. You know, if you're walking into somewhere that's stressful, how long is it going to take before you get stressed? You know, and then things can escalate from there. So I think we need to evaluate how we are correcting bad behavior from police officers. I I had a friend that threw me this idea of something called the uniform code of police justice, just like we have the uniform code of military justice. And in the uniform code of military, UCMJ, there's three types of punishment. You've got a summarized Article 15, you've got a, a company grade, and then you've got a field grade, each with you know different levels of severity. But there's a code out there that's published that tells you exactly what behavior is unacceptable, exactly what behavior you should be, you know, and that we've got philosophies of behavior, we've got creeds, we've got, uh, you know, on and on talking about the honor and being able to serve. I think we need to reorient our police culture in a way that we can reestablish that, okay? And police culture needs to understand that there's a lot of lost trust in those minority communities because they don't feel like the police have their best interests at heart. And just like with politicians, Let's say. we have to re-earn that trust. You need yeah. to have that mentality that yes. you're being untrusted. Yeah. I like that. I like that's a good, it's a great place to start, I believe. Um, we're starting to run out of time here, so I'm going to ask a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, I had a question from a military veteran, uh, basically asking if you had plans to prioritize veterans, veterans affairs. Um, you know, I've, I've heard, I don't have personal experience, but I've heard about, you know, uh, troubles with the, the, the medical the VA. Yeah. The yep. VA. Um, I don't know if there's uh, options for you to help out there or not. I, I just wanted to get, get maybe if you had, if you had any plans so, to help um, veterans and that kind of deal. We've been at war now for since, uh, 2001. We are currently in the longest war in the nation's history fought by the smallest percent of the population because we have a volunteer force. Um, we've been making do with, and you gotta remember 2003 to 2009, we were in Afghanistan and Iraq. By the way, we're still in Bosnia. By the way, we're still in Kosovo. By the, you know, 800 bases. That's how many the U.S. military has outside their borders. 800. Okay. Russia, France, and is it Great Britain or Germany? Russia, France, and Great Britain combined have about 30. Okay. So we need to reorient our idea about what our military is protecting because the men and women of our armed forces raise their right hand and they don't swear allegiance to. They don't swear allegiance to the people. They do not swear allegiance to the Constitution, or excuse me, to Congress. They don't swear allegiance to the president. They swear allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is not a mission that is conducive to 800 bases outside of our borders. Next year, um, September 12th, 2021, is when you're going to start seeing all of the military veterans who joined on September 12th, 2001, start to retire. They're going to hit their 20 year mark and they're going to start to retire. Beyond that, I can tell you as someone who has been in the military, there are a lot of broken soldiers, a lot, especially with PTSD, back problems, neck problems. You're talking, there are guys coming out who've got, who've had 10 deployments. Okay. We have to reorient how we are taking care of our veterans now, because if we don't fix it now, we're going to have to wait until it's an emergency. And it has to be emergency funded. 
Um, the conversations that we have about our veteran affairs always seems to be just throw money at it, you know, throw money at it and we'll see, you know, they'll take care of themselves. We need to rethink the VA as a whole. We need to think about the quality of people that we have running it, the quality of people that we have working in it, and exactly what the mission of the VA is. Because if it's not taking care of the welfare and the health of our veterans, we need to figure out how to make it happen. Okay, But just like with every other branch of our government, every other uh, department, if you're not meeting the intent, then you're a waste of money. <laughs> you know, And we yeah. can use it elsewhere, Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the short answer is we are not taking care of our veterans the way we should. It's only going to get worse. Um, so how do we fix it? We, they do need more money, obviously, but the director of the VA needs to be someone who, I mean, you might consider bringing in somebody from the private sector, just in efficiency, you, you know, and the idea that you give someone who has experience in making large organizations effective and saying, I want you to figure out how to effectively take care of our veterans and then take all the suggestions, <laughs> Yeah, you know, everything within reason. Um, but we've got to figure out how to do it now because start next year, it's only going to get worse, worse and worse and worse. All right. We'll address, uh, the big elephant in the room, Come on with it. uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it's, it's affected Louisiana pretty significantly, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the, the United States and the world as a whole. Um, do you, obviously there's a lot of people who've lost their jobs through this thing. And uh, loved ones. Yeah. Uh, and loved ones for sure. Um, do you have any ideas as to, uh, let me reference the word itself. Okay. Uh, COVID unemployment assistance was, was really the question that so, uh, was um, raised. One of the great First of all, the, the, when we talk about the pandemic, everybody, everybody needs to understand that two things are true, and they can be true at the same time, okay? One, the pandemic is serious, and two, it's being exploited. <laughs> we all have to accept that both of those things can be true, okay? But the COVID unemployment insurance, is, it's, a, it's a classic example of short-term government thinking, Okay. We know we can't keep paying people to prop up the economy. It just can't happen. You know, if, they, if we just keep printing money and everything, you know, inflation is going to rise. You know, our credit rating is going to drop. And you can take a look at what happened to Greece back in 2012, I think it was. I would say it wasn't that long ago. Well, and that's what I'm saying is that that's what can happen. And it happens like that, you yeah. know. Um, so I think the other flawed mentality that we have is that this is only going to be here a few months. You know, it's, it's right around the corner that, that this will be gone. We need to start adapting ourselves to the idea that this is going to be here for a year or years. Okay. Now, is it going to be like that? I don't know. Nobody does, but we need to, in this situation, we need to be planning for the worst and hoping for the best. Now that means reorienting parts of our economy so that people can do them a remotely. You can learn skills remotely. You can uh, start separating people. If they're in a waiting room, you can start figuring out how to, and I mean, it's hard to, to put a, a plus on such a terrible thing, but the good news is we're at a point in our technological advancement where the internet is indispensable, where we can use the internet for a lot of these things. And we don't have to worry about if you need to go to, you know, nobody wants to go to school online because it's less effective than, you know, but I think instead of unemployment insurance, we should have uh, free online job training. 
Um, and in the meantime, you can't eat free online job training. I recognize that. But I, I also recognize that the unemployment benefits that we're sending out right now are ridiculous. You're talking people are making $50,000 a year on unemployment benefits. Right. Okay. Um, but we have to differentiate between the people who need help and the people that want help. How do we do that? That's a good question. You cannot do it in bulk. You cannot do it in bulk. That's the big, the big mentality everybody's got to get with. The military especially deals, they don't deal with one person. They deal with a million. You know, they deal yeah. with a thousand. They deal yeah. with a hundred. Everything, right. Everything's uniform. Exactly. And, and so if, if 20 people have this problem, we're going to train everybody. You know, 100 people can go through the training. Sorry about that. Um, but when we talk about how to make sure that the benefits are not being abused, I mean, you're going to have to, and I can't just keep seeing the word, you're going to have to reorient your state government so that they're not just issuing paperwork, sign here, come back on this date, and this. No, you're going to have to sit down and almost be a social worker and say, okay, did you go here? At this? Why didn't you go to this job interview? Okay, what happened at this job interview? How are we going to do better next time? And you help people to get on their feet, okay? Because the mentality that we need to have with all of our tax-provided benefits is we are going to teach you to fish. We are not going to give you a fish. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, I definitely um, get behind that. With the COVID, there, there, I, I don't dismiss the idea of sending out some kind of a stimulus payment outright to avoid absolute catastrophe, but I, I think we've already gone too far. Yeah. Um. So to go any further at this point, we're just kicking the can down the road, you know. And the more we kick it, you know, the more steep the incline gets. Um. Uh, do you think the state should be open? Do you think the country should be open? To, to what degrees? There's not... Obviously, what, today is like August 5th, 6th, something like that. Yeah. There's not any single point in this country where that decision should be made for every other part of the country. There's no part of the country. So if President Trump wants to stand in Washington, D.C. and say the entire country should shut down, okay? The mayor of Louisiana should be able... The mayor of Louisiana. The mayor of Alexandria should be able to take a look at his city his situation and say, no, I think we can keep our economy open without sacrificing people's lives. Okay. Because you've, you've lived in Louisiana. Okay. When perish, uh, you know, as compared to New York city, the mentality that we have of these national level solution to these, these problems, all of the information should be flowing down and the decisions should be made at the local level. And we, we say the yeah. lowest level possible. I was just about to say yeah. that. I heard that on the radio yesterday. The lowest military level guy, possible. The, the, the problem should be solved at the lowest level possible. Well, that's and exactly like, right. Man, that's and that Well, beautiful. and that's how, remember we were talking about at the federal level, if a problem gets to the federal level, we already know it's complicated, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. because you should be solving it down at those local levels. And if it makes it all the way. So, even the go, I mean, even at the state level, the governor saying we're stopped here, everybody shut down, you know... The mayor of Winfield should be able to make decisions for his community based on the information he has, based on the resources that he has, you know. And I, maybe there's a role for the governor or the governor's staff to make sure that those local towns have a plan. You know, you know, what are you going to do if a teacher shows up sick? Are the kids going to be quarantined for two weeks? Are their families going to be quarantined for two weeks? You know, let's walk through your plan and what's going to happen. Yeah. Somebody should maybe make sure that happens. But... The idea that from the national level or even the state level, you know, you're being dictated on how to handle this emergency within your community. It's just, it's there's an election coming up, you know, and everybody wants to be seen that they're doing something. And sure. nobody cares if it's the best thing. They just want to make sure that they're being seen doing something. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I'll wrap it up here. I really appreciate your your willing to sit down with me and, and answer some some Absolutely. questions, hard, easy, whatever. It's a great great conversation. I Thank appreciate you, you man. Um, I'll I'll. We'll end it with with you giving your pitch. Uh, why why should we vote for you? What what separates you from the rest of the the candidates? I know it's a a relatively large field. Yeah, uh, what, five or six other uh, competitors. We've got we've got three other Republicans and uh, at least two other Democrats. There might be a third in there. I'm not sure. So, um, but yeah. I in it you don't ever want to go into a sales pitch by saying this is going to be easy. <laughs> but I think it's a common sense fact for all Americans that we all know what we're doing is not working. We all know that the direction that our country is heading in is, is not sustainable. Okay. And each and every one of us who's paying attention to the direction that our country's going in, we're all frustrated because we don't know what to do. And all you have to do is take a look at my, my past statements. All you have to do is take a look at my history, look at where I came from to know that I am not a politician. That's why I've got this beard. It's because I want each and every person to see me. As soon as they lock eyes, they know that I'm different. Okay? They know that I'm not your standard politician. I bring new ideas to the table. Um, I'm not doing this for power. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this for honor, for lack of a better word to put it on. And I know that might make you roll your eyes, but it's, it's truly the mentality I have as somebody who served their country for so long that I just I can't let it happen without a fight. And I urge you and everybody you can talk to that if you are like me and you see these things and you are frustrated by them and you don't know what to do, I need you to reach out. Find me on Facebook, Matt Hasty for Congress. We need all the help we can get. The Republican successor has been chosen. The Republican Party's already decided who's going to. All you got to do is take a look at the FEC filings and how much money everybody's raised. We don't have money. Okay, I grew up poor and I'm not rich now. Okay, but we do have values. We have passion. Okay, so I need all the help you can give me. Uh, reach out to me on Facebook or you can go to GoHasty.com. GoHasty with an X. Um, and look for us coming soon. We're holding town halls all across the district. Come on out. Ask me a question. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to the bespoke barber. Mr. Hamilton. Absolutely. Mr. Hamilton. For if you life. like the beard, I urge uh, not to, no, not to yeah, interrupt yeah. you. I want to give him a plug. I urge every gentleman in the area to come down here and get you a spa day. And I know what it sounds like, okay? But this gentleman's been trained in Italy on straight razor techniques. And I, I trust me, he'll explain to you what he's doing. But I'm not going to retain it all. <laughs> he just so, gave me the rundown of his hot towel shave. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If blew you don't my fall mind. asleep in the chair, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's very relaxing. <laughs> and so if you get a chance, look him up the bespoke barber, Mr. Hamilton in Monroe. But can't thank him enough for allowing us to use, use his space. And uh, thanks to you, Matt, again for uh, yes, coming you. on and giving me your time. So uh, y'all check Matt out and uh, catch up with you next time.